I think for the most part, it's been uh, that superpower has been finding uh, finding and cultivating ideas from from the people you least likely expect them to come from. So uh, what I mean by that is, it's like we started 25 internal companies within that company that I mentioned, and about half of those ideas did not come from our product teams, our innovation teams. They came from somebody like our front desk office manager um, that had an idea that was like. And you just kind of cultivate and pull that idea out because they have they have a different approach about looking at things. And often there are people in the companies that everybody else, it's not that it's not that from a position level that people disregard them, but from an expertise per, uh, level perspective, people don't look to many positions for solutions in other industry, uh, other areas of the company. And my I've had this unique ability to always go, kind of go outside of the core expert areas and find find unique solutions that existed within the company and teams, but nobody else was, was listening, listening to somebody raising a hand going, I have an idea. Heroes are an inspiring group of people, every one of them from the larger than life comic book heroes you see on the big silver screen, the everyday heroes that let us live the privileged lives we do. Every hero has a story to tell, from the doctor saving lives at your local hospital, the war veteran down the street who risked his life for our freedom, to the police officers and the firefighters who risk their safety to ensure ours. Every hero is special and every story worth telling. But there is one class of heroes that I think is often ignored, the entrepreneur, the creator, the producer, the ones who look at the problems in this world and think to themselves, you know what, I can fix that, I can help people, I can make a difference. Then they go out and do exactly that by creating a new product or introducing a new service. Some go on to change the world. Others make a world of difference to their customers. Welcome to The Hero Show. Join us as we pull back the masks on the world's finest heropreneurs and learn the secrets to their powers, their success, and their influence. So you can use those secrets to attract more sales, make more money, and experience more freedom in your business. I'm your host, Richard Matthews, and we are on in three, two, one. Hello and welcome back to The Hero Show. My name is Richard Matthews, and today I have um, uh, Kurt Ulhir on the line. Did I pronounce that right? Euler, but close enough. Euler. I was. I should have. I should have checked with you ahead of time. I normally do. So, Kurt Euler, um, where are you calling in from today? Uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Have you guys? Uh, have you guys started to get the warm weather there yet? Uh, very warm. Very warm. We have some mountain property north of the state that's nice to go to because it's about ten to fifteen degrees cooler usually. Yeah, my my family and I decided we would take a trip up the Rockies from from Colorado all the way up to Glacier National Park. So we were in Glacier last week, and it's like it's like last week of May, and it's still like 80 feet of snow on the ground up there. And they got roads closed, and I'm like, I'm like, it's almost June. What is this? <laughs> uh, so we're in Western Wyoming today, and today is the first day in like five weeks that I've seen the sun. <laughs> oh wow. So it's crazy because I'm a Southern boy myself, right? Southern California and Florida and um, Southern Texas have been where I've spent most of my time. So like I'm used to, you know, like winter is like two months. Yep. Yep. <laughs> not, not nine. Uh, so what I want to do real quick before we get into the interview is just do a, a brief introduction for you and then we'll get in and, uh, and start talking about your story. So um, Kurt is a uh, global rec um, globally recognized marketer, operator, and speaker. He's built and run businesses from startups to over 500 million in annual revenue, assembled teams across six continents, been part of small team um, leading an IPO that was $880 million and participated in dozens of acquisitions. So you've done all sorts of stuff. What I want to start off with is what is it that you're known for? Right. What do you? What's your business like now? Who do you serve? What do you do for them? Uh, I'm known for helping uh, companies big and small scale. So um, I've tried things at that very very early stage. Um, that's not where I'm best suited for. Where I'm best suited for is 
where companies have figured out something and they need to 50X or even a thousand X that, um, figure out how to systematically do that in a very short amount of time, that hyper growth phase. And so do you um, focus on any particular industry for that? Is it like e-commerce or is it service-based stuff or does it matter really? For the, it doesn't really matter. For the uh, last five years, I've been pretty heavy in real estate for, for my day job anyways. But um, it's kind of unique in my background is I've done this in 11 industries over time. And so um, I found a lot of the things that that work um, kind, of, just kind of across the board in industries. And it's more of coming in and helping people kind of get outside of the you know, the, the daily grind that they have, it locks them up so that they don't, they can't grow their business. And so sometimes that's small businesses. Right now I'm helping do that with a large public company as well. So um, we're growing quite fast. So, so how do you know when someone is done with that small business stage and ready for hyper growth? Like what's the, uh, what's the trigger that says, Hey, you know what? I should, I should call Kurt and ask him to uh, help us rapidly scale. Um, well, at the, I mean, at the, at the smaller level, at least I'd say, you know, they're, they're doing, you know, single digit millions to tens of millions of dollars in business already. And so I, I offer advice and things that help for a lot of other businesses. Uh, influence is a big part of no matter where you're at in your growth curve, but um, it's for somebody who's found that repeatable business and they're usually they're, they've hit a plateau and so they know that they need an inflection point to kind of jump up to the next level. Um, but they could just sit there and be repeatedly successful, you know, uh, you know, one to $10 million a year in revenue. And that's comfortable money for most people in most companies, um, but they just can't figure out how to break through. Uh, I can help them break through that. Yeah, yeah. I had a, uh, a guest on a few months ago who mentioned that there, there's like, there's a whole stage that she calls like baby business, you know, under the six figures where they're learning how to like, what to do and what to serve. And then yep. from about $100,000 to about two to 3 million where they're learning, like, like she called it like toddler business, right? You've got systems, you got a product at that point. And she's like, and then you have the plateau where everyone gets stuck is between two and 10 million. Yeah. Um, and she's like, after 10 million, that's when you're starting to build in a big business and a big brand. And yeah, you see the same kind of like stages. Uh, very, very much so. I um, I tend to I do see that, and it's more of how I talk to the entrepreneurs or the leaders. Um, I've been part of growing some some companies that were pretty big at the time for a lot of people. You know, eighty five million a year in revenue to one point four four billion um yeah. a year in revenue, and now at another a company uh, have had a couple companies similar growth trajectories at hyper growth. But yeah, it's often looking at things where. Like you just can't do a billion dollars a year in revenue without things being very systematic, very, you know, like my love languages are, you know, Trello and SOPs. And um, my, my, my wife, uh, my wife, thankfully, has very similar love languages to that. But those same things that work for very, very big businesses, you can step into all those growth phases you kind of mentioned and realize, yeah, people are stuck up by stuck by doing too many things that are manual. And that's what's holding them in one of those stages. Yeah, yeah. I've actually, um, my my podcast production agency, that's what I've been spending an inordinate amount of time doing is building our SOPs and the system structures behind everything that we do. Um, because I was like, I, I already recognized with just the number of clients we have now that I was like, if I don't have all of this stuff nailed from SOPs and systems, it'll never grow. Yep. So yeah, there, at every stage, I mean, whether it's small as a solo entrepreneur doing six figures or a billion dollars a year, or, you know, with a thousand people on the team, there's always manual stuff that has to be done. But the more things you can systematize, the better. Yeah, yeah. And like, I, I always talk with with my team and the clients that I work with is like, sy 
systems involve both people and robots, <laughs> right? And you yeah. have to know where the uh, where the line is between robot and human, um, yeah. and like how you how you de design your systems and your your processes to handle that. Yeah, and and trusting the humans on your team. So I find too often, you know, especially at the at smaller stage companies, um, you know, the, the leader, especially if it's a single, you know, uh, owner, uh, he or she tends to uh, feel like they they don't mean to, but they're like they've been successful through their blood, sweat, and tears, and they often end up getting in a place where they feel like they have to make so many of the decisions, as opposed to like I I know I one of the core things I know about my business on any given day is I am the bottleneck. And I have to get myself out of the way and empower my people so that even if I have to help them today, they shouldn't need to come to me with the same issue next time, or especially not in a couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And I know um, I was like, I, I work with um, a couple of companies, one of that I'm, I'm in the process of trying to buy. But the, the, one of the things that I've noticed is that in every company, there always seems to be, um, I don't have to call it other than like, you have a bunch of key men. Right, where all the information is locked in a certain role, a certain person's head. And if like that person were to get hit by a bus today, that whole section of the business would stop working. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And that always freaks me out, freaks me out about my business. And I always like I have a whole list of things. I'm like, these are all the things that if I get hit by a bus today that won't work in my business. So I've got like a checklist of things. <laughs> that oh, I'm nice. Through. nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's de-risking the, the company. So it's it's one thing when. Now, I'm keenly aware of it, you know, as a, as a leader that, you know, of course, you know, I'm providing for my family or my family being provided for by my day, my work, but everybody on my team and on their teams underneath them, like we're all providing for them. So like if I was to get hit by a bus, it's not just my family that suffers. It's hundreds of families underneath me as well. And so it's like I need to de-risk not just the company, but everybody's personal life as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that as as my company has been growing, that has that particular thing has been weighing on me more heavily than than uh, when I was younger and only had myself to worry about in my business, myself and my family. It should. I mean, that's an that's an important part for me, anyways. Of like, you know, being a servant leader is realizing that like I'm here. You know, I I'm I'm here. Of course, I'm trying to grow a business, and hopefully, that's going to provide for my family and generations to come. But it's like on a daily day-to-day -day basis, I'm here to serve the people on my team. And that's not just them when they're at the office. It's realizing that, hey, that's providing for their families at home. Yeah, yeah. And I know one of the things I, I like to to know with my staff is like, you know, who all they have in their family and, you know, how their support structure works and whatnot. Just because like, I don't know, it just, it helps me just to think about like who, who I'm actually serving. Because, you know, your business serves your customers, but it also serves your team. Yeah. So. Well, and it comes to me too is um, just, you know, over the decades, I, for whatever reason, I've had a lot of people gravitate towards me that um, I, it is traditional lifestyle, uh, a traditional life, but, you know, they're, uh, they're deep into elder care. They have special needs children. Um, they have a spouse or a partner that may be going through, you know, cancer or some sort of situation. And like part of it from a growth perspective is knowing it's one thing when you just have a couple people on your team. But especially if you if you have a dozen people on your team, I almost guarantee you have somebody on their team that's in one of those scenarios or something else. And so, you know, I don't want people just to work work with me and for me for six months or a year. So if they work for me over you know a couple of years, they're going to have ebbs and flows in those personal things that are going on. Yeah. I have to know what's going on in their personal lives so that like I can one serve them from what you know from from a work perspective. It's like. Oh, your spouse can't got a big health, you know, decision that came down. 
they need a little bit more margin at, at home. And so it's like, there's, those are the type of things that, you know, make people better employees, but also realize like, there's this whole, it's not work, it's personal. No, it's both. Like, you know, yeah. whatever, yeah. whatever's going on in your personal life, if your personal life falls apart, it's going to impact your job at work and it's going to impact the company. So, I mean, a little self-serving, it is in my interest to make sure that I can accommodate your personal life, but I can't do that unless I know what's going on as well. Yeah. And I know just from some of the companies that I've worked with in my own, like I've had staff members that you know gets married and has like honeymoons coming up and you know they've probably got babies in the future and like all those are like those are big things and like I had a one of my other one of my other clients I had one of their their top salesperson um they had a, a breakup in their their relationship that they'd had for like 15 years or something like that and that like it yeah. tanked their ability to do sales and right now like that, that impacts the company but it also impacts right. them and like how, how do you support and work through those things there's a lot a lot that goes into the into growing a team yeah, yeah. I, um, I I won't name the company, but uh, I, I had a number of friends that were with a very large uh, public company that was known for uh, div- divorces, affairs, and other type of, you know, not necessarily great work relationships in there. Well, what I, not, not anything from a social judgment perspective, but what I noticed was, oh my gosh, the turmoil on those businesses. People were putting in so many more hours when I just found them, because I had dozens of friends at this company. And I'm like, I, when I actually started talking to them, I'm like, you all are, are kind of burning so many hours because the company is, is expecting people to work in such crazy things. It's destroying personal lives. And because yeah. of that, it was actually impacting the business without realizing like that this was kind of an incestuous thing. They were expecting people to work 70, 80 hours a week and more. And that was destroying personal lives, which was then causing turmoil back in work as projects went derailed for some of the reasons you mentioned. And I'm like, you could just fix this. Like by just stepping back and now they had tens of thousands of employees and like, and just taking a different approach to work it is okay. I mean, and I'm not one to shy away from working a lot of hours. I don't sleep a lot. Um, my, my wife and I had to discuss that before we got married. It's like, I work more hours than most people. I also don't watch Netflix. So it's like, if I want to work 70 or 80 hours a week, that's okay. It's just my companies will never expect that from me or of me, of anybody on my teams. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm the same way. I, I will uh, work really long and really hard when I'm working on something, but I never expect that from my, uh, my team members. Because um, it's, I don't know what you call it, like, entrepreneurs are a different breed of people. <laughs> For sure. Well, so, I, I find from that as well, especially having been at the, at the, you know, helped a lot of companies and invest in a lot of companies at the earlier stage. I think a big portion of it for leaders, especially if you want to have influence, you know, within your organization, but it's like, it's, it is on our role as, as team leaders to make sure that it's not my job to make sure that say you are planning dates with your wife or, you know, like time with your kids, but it is my job to make sure that you're answering and planning intentionally, whatever that, what that means to you. And so I try talking to people that work for me and I'm like, Hey, I need you. I need you as early as possible to start to plan your vacations for the year, because otherwise we will get busy. You will enjoy what we're working on, and and you'll get to December and realize, gosh, you didn't take time off. You didn't you didn't spend the time with your with your partner or spouse that you may want to. And so plan for that upfront. The business will accommodate that, and what that timing looks like needs to be up to you. That's your personal life. But it is on my part of it is on my role to say, hey, like I don't expect you to work. 70 hours a week and if you love what you do like most of us you know that you know it sounds like you I'm guessing much of your listeners are like 
I will just get caught up in work. If I don't plan ahead for when my wife and I are going to take time off, I, I will hit the end of every week and have spent very little time. And uh, with, uh, from a personal side, which is not going to be good. And not something that I would yeah. want if I, if I, when I look back, I'm going to be very distraught that like, wow, I, I did not spend time with my family. Yeah, I, I have, I have, I operate a little strangely there because of the way we do our, our lifestyle. We travel full time. We've been on the road for five years and, you know, I work with four different companies, including my own. Um, and I, uh, I, I practice something I call a uh, time restriction. Yeah. Um, and so like, I generally won't work more than four hours a day, four days a week. Yeah. Um, and what I found is that, uh, that when, when I do that, when I put really tight restrictions on it, I, I only get the most important things done. Yeah. And then the rest of the time I spend adventuring and doing stuff with my family, but I've, it's also meant that I've grown my companies a lot over the last couple of years, which is interesting because seven or eight years ago, I was the, I was the guy who was like, let's see how much work I get done in 80 hours a week. Yeah. Um, and my businesses were smaller and struggling. <laughs> okay. Yep. Yeah. I can so. appreciate that. I, I somewhat of the same. So I, I do time block a lot of my day. And so for the things that kind of you're mentioning, like, here's my core things, but I also tend to divvy up things into deep work and shallow work. And so, you know, yeah. I think we all have this long list of shallow work things, much of which we, we hand off to other people in our teams. But since, you know, Hey, I'm a huge star Wars fan, huge star Trek fan. And so by all means, I love veg, vegging on some of those things at two o'clock in the morning when my wife, uh, wife and kids are sleeping. But, but if, you know, hey, Kenobi hasn't come out yet. I mean, it did just come out now that we're <laughs> taping this. But um, when, some, you know, I'm kind of caught up on all my shows, like I'm going to go and work because I'm not yeah. one to just sit in front of the TV usually. And so um, yeah, I way. always have those things kind of take off or look and see what's on people on my team's list and go, hey, I can go take that off of Michael's list. Yep. I am a, I'm not much of a TV watcher. We, my wife and I will occasionally get a TV show we want to watch and then we'll binge watch it and watch the whole thing. Yeah. But like, I, I actually, I can't remember the last time I watched a TV show. It's, it's been several months, um, if not more. And so like the last, like my, my binging at night when I'm like sitting up with my, my wife in bed has been playing with uh, no code app building, which is okay. like, I don't think it's actually relevant for, I might have, I might have something we might do with my companies, but it's mostly just been, it's been like an explorative, like, I wonder if we could leverage any of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I always have something like that going on. It's, it's like shallow. It doesn't really relate to anything, but it's like, in, instead of vegging watching TV, I'm vegging like, I don't even know if you'd call it vegging. It's more like I'm learning something that I could probably apply in one of my businesses somewhere. You're picking up hobbies, perhaps. Yeah, there you go. Picking up hobbies. Hobbies or skills. Like, yeah. Hobbies or skills. Um, it was the piano for a while. I'm still doing that. My wife and I have been learning piano. Um, but yeah, it's, I've always got something that's not generally, it's not generally like consumption related. It's more learning related that I use my, my downtime for. <laughs> so, well, I want to talk a little bit about your origin story then. Um, you know, every good comic book hero has an origin story. It's the thing that made them into the hero they are that are today. Um, and you know, you know, it's basically, were you bit by a, by a radioactive spider that, you know, made you get into, uh, um, rapid growth or um, were you born a hero or did you start in a job and eventually move over to doing what you do now um, essentially where'd you come from 
uh, a, a little of both, I guess, um, from kind of the nature and the nurture side. Um, I billed my first hours to Bell Labs when I was still like seven or eight because my dad worked for Bell Labs, became Lucent Technologies as part of AT&T. And um, I, he used to take me into work periodically, pull me out of school. And um, I helped him solve some math and uh, math issues. And um, he's like, well, we pay contractors for this. And so he billed me as a contractor to some things. And so I did get into that kind of very early with a a dad that like literally didn't sleep. Like he slept an hour and a half to maybe two hours a night for uh, until I think his second bout with cancer. And so then he started sleeping a little bit more like a normal person, more like five to six hours a night. Um, so I, I remember him waking me up at like three o'clock in the morning being like, let's go on a field trip. And so I don't know if that was like not sleeping has kind of been in my DNA or if that was just the fact that dad would wake me up so for so often and mom was still in bed. And so I kind of get used to it, but um not having to sleep as much as most people does help um, you get started and make a lot more progress than a lot of people, so. So how did you get into um, the helping businesses do the rapid growth? Um, so I, I mean, some of that was, um, I started my first, actually two legal entities when I was 14, uh, both of which became uh, seven figure businesses within a couple of years. So ended up selling one off when I went to college. Um, so I always had kind of a business background but um, I kind of lucked into helping people grow. So when I came out of my master's, I ended up joining a company called Navtech, um, became Here Technologies. Think about MapQuest back in the day, a Garmin device, Google Maps now, but like we were around before then. They're still the largest spatial data company in the world. So I ended up being able to join uh, uh, Denise Doyle and Saladin Khan at that company. And so we basically ran this umbrella organization where think about all the places that um, that use a spatial data or map. And so I would walk out of a meeting with Siemens BDO that makes a navigation system for Lexus into Microsoft video games. So I actually helped design Microsoft Flight Simulator that was back there on the thing. And then into a meeting with uh, FedEx or UPS Logistics. And so like kind of like 10 different, 10 to 11 different industries, like day in and day out, one meeting to the next. And almost as an in-house management consultant, helping these companies grow, use our data, and um, learning a lot from Saladin Khan. So I didn't, I didn't actually know what I was learning at the time. I was just along this crazy ride when we grew the company from 85 million a year in revenue to 1.44 billion over 10 years. Um, and so when I left there, by that point, I had probably made two dozen angel investment deals. So I'd been on the board for some companies advising things. And I kind of looked back and was like, wow. Um, I had a mentor at the time that kind of pointed out, he was like, do you realize what the last like decade of your life has been like? And I was like, no, because we've been working really hard. <laughs> like I haven't taken and, a chance to look at it yet. Yeah. And so um, I ended up moving down to Atlanta and um, just starting to help a lot of companies from that. And I mean, my nature is to try to look for problems and look for people I can help. And so that's actually why I started writing angel investment checks originally and um, offering advice, some good advice, some bad advice, um, but helping companies along the way. And I kind of stumbled into this place of hypergrowth because I mean, in 10 years, regrew that company so fast across so many different industries. I didn't even think about it at the time. I just had some really good mentors along the ways that showed me kind of the path that I've now followed. Awesome. So over the course of that time, I assume you probably developed what we call on this show superpowers, right? Every iconic hero has a superpower, whether that's, you know, fancy flying suit made by the genius intellect or the ability to call down thunder from the sky. Um, in the real world, heroes have what I call a zone of genius, which is either a skill they were born with or they developed over the course of time. 
that really sets you apart. It helps you to slay your client's villains, so to speak, um, help them come on top of their own journeys. And the way I like to frame this for my guests is if you look at the skills that you developed over your career, there's probably a common thread that sort of ties them all together. And that common thread is probably where your superpower is. And with that framing, what do you think your superpower is in your business? Uh, I think for the most part, it's been uh, that superpower has been finding uh, finding and cultivating ideas from from the people you least likely expect them to come from. So uh, what I mean by that is it's like we started 25 internal companies within that company that I mentioned, and about half of those ideas did not come from our product teams, our innovation teams. They came from somebody like our front desk office manager um, that had an idea that was like, and you just kind of cultivate and pull that idea out because they have they have a different approach about looking at things. And often there are people in the companies that everybody else, it's not that it's not that from a position level that people disregard them, but from an expertise per, uh, level perspective, people don't look to many positions for solutions in other industry, uh, other areas of the company. And my, I've had this unique ability to always go, kind of go outside of the core expert areas and find, find unique solutions that existed within the company and teams, but nobody else was, was listening, listening to somebody raising a hand going, I have an idea. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of, uh, um, you know, they say most of the innovation in business space comes um, like cross sector, right? yeah. like the, uh, um, what is it? Uh, Ronald McDonald came up with the drive-through from looking at drive-through drug stores. Yeah. Right. It was, it was a, it wasn't a food thing. It wasn't even in that industry. Um, and so it's like, you're, you're just bringing that same concept internally into the company that just because someone's working at the front desk doesn't mean they can't come up yeah. with ideas. It'll help, you know, production or help, uh, help something else. Yeah. That was early on in my career. I, you know, I, I, that's, it's morphed a little bit. I, you know, in the last probably 12 years, I think I, now it's kind of cultivated to the places I have this unique ability to um, be completely okay with the uh, belief that I am fundamentally wrong about at least three things in my business right now. And I don't know what those are. And, and I say that of like consistently, if I look back over time and possibly with you yourself, at any one point, you, were, you can look back and go, yeah, last year, I was completely wrong about this thing that now I know I, I, sh I should have made a different choice on. And so, you know, we did a lot of work with Georgia Tech back in the day and we kind of realized that it was like, wow, Feeling wrong and feeling, or you know, being wrong and being right about something feels exactly the same until you realize that you're Wiley e. Coyote out over the cliff and the roadrunner's back over down, there, yeah. and you're like, oh my gosh, I've I've invested a million and a half dollars in two years on something that was completely the wrong decision, and so I, but I'm really comfortable with that too, and so I I build processes into my companies now, and I also surround myself with people saying, I, again, I know that I'm wrong about at least three things in my business and my teams today. And my job, my fundamental role today is to try to figure out what, are, what am I wrong about so that I can become right sooner um, and we can make a, make a more wise choice. Yeah, one of the things I found interesting is that, uh, that despite being wrong about so many things, you can still make progress. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I have uh, no problem. No problem with uh, with the the, the fail fast. You know, make a decision and fail fast concept. I just you know consistently, I'd look back. You know, the early part of my career, and I was like, I could have known that I was wrong much earlier than I actually did. Um, and so when we did that research with Jordan Tech, and I'm like, yeah, being wrong is just like being you know feels just like being right. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, how do you fix that? You'd be very comfortable with there's something I'm wrong about today. 
and being very open to other people um, speaking into what that could be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to talk about the flip side then of your superpower, right? So if your superpower is that ability to be comfortable with being wrong and getting ideas from anywhere, the flip side of every superpower is, of course, the fatal flaw. Right, so just like Superman has his kryptonite or Wonder Woman can't remove her bracelets of victory without going mad, you probably had something that you've struggled with, something that's held you back. For me, I struggled with a lot of things. I struggled with perfectionism for a long time, which kept me from shipping product. I also struggled with a lack of self-care, which we talked a little bit about, but you know, not sleeping. I, try, I actually oh. tried not sleeping for like three days once. That doesn't go well, in case you're wondering. Um, <laughs> and, but I think more important than what the flaw is, is how have you worked to overcome it so that our audience might learn a little bit from your expertise or from your uh, experience? Yeah, um, my fly I'd say in the past has been um, real, not always necessarily realizing my own needs or other people. So a lot of times I found that, um, you know, I, I will show up to a certain way in companies or in, an, in a decision or in a meeting, but that's not actually my core need. As an example, um, I've been very successful learning that, uh, knowing that the faster we can make a decision, and, and move forward, even if we're wrong, that tends to be better because we can iterate going forward. But my core need is the bigger the decision is, I actually need time to go sit back by myself and think it through. But I don't show up that way. So like that's one of the ways realizing that how people show up is not often what they actually need. And that applies to myself. So that by having kind of that common language to, it allows me then to kind of figure out more who you are and what you need. Um, I really kind of come to a lot of that conclusion too. Some of it just was struggling, but um, everybody on my team when we hire uh, when we hire goes through the Berkman assessment, which is less of a personality uh, assessment and much more of a communication assessment, so that we all have common language to talk about our needs, our stressors, and then it gives us a way to kind of as a third party talk about, oh, this is how I think you show up, Richard, in the meeting, and that stresses me out. And let's talk about that because yeah. it's not about it's not anything negative about you. I just like, let's talk about how you may show up and how that, how I react to that. And once we acknowledge that, then we can move forward very easily. Yeah. Cause you have a common language to discuss those differences. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, it's yeah, very it's transparent similar. as well. So it kind of gives everybody common language and then everybody like on our teams gets everybody else's report too. So it's like, if you want to know how I'm going to respond in any one of these nine areas, go read my 30 page Berkman report. And it's like, it's kind of the snapshot, the cliff notes for who is Kurt and how, what the interaction is going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost, it's like a more complex version of like the, uh, the love languages that we, you mentioned earlier, right? Yeah. Once you, once you sort of know your love language or your spouse's love languages, it's really easy to see how you guys can interact with each other to make the relationship stronger. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you're just leveraging that in your team. And you, I assume you build processes around that for, you said for hiring and for like actually making sure everyone knows and is aware of like how the communication works for between people. Yeah, much more. Uh, like we use the Berkman on the um, a after somebody's been hired. We we do hire to different cultural traits that it's like um, from years of kind of doing this at different companies. You know, they're they're on my they're on my website. So I you know I'm going to interview and ask you. You know, what does healthy conflict mean to you, and how do you deal with that? And some people are a little bit too much into conflict, um, and other people I say healthy conflict. And they almost freak out because any conflict is toxic to them. And that's a problem because like you can't avoid conflict, but you can deal with it early on in my experience. So it's like, we're going to hire to certain, you know, people that have traits like that or a bias towards action. Am I always going to get it right? No, but like, I want to hire people that like, I want to so make a decision and I want to solve it and I'm going to have an idea. So we, we put a lot of those things from hiring up front. And then the Berkman really just kind of tells us once you're here, 
how do we communicate back and forth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd be interested to hear more about how you uh, how you do some of the hiring stuff because we're in that stage now where we're trying to hire people. We're also running into this problem recently with, uh, with at least one of my companies that even getting people to show up for interviews has been difficult. But that's probably more of just a where the world is right now than than companies. That's a little of both. I, I think both from a hiring perspective and even getting people to show up, it's um, it, it is it's it's having that culture, but having it very transparent about. Um, about uh, who the current team is, who you are, who, what your flaws are. Because um, there's a lot of places that I could go and work. And I'm at a company right now um, where both, you know, even the, you know, even the most senior person who started a public company, you know, you get a pretty good idea when you hear him on interviews, who he is. And when I interact, that is exactly who he is. And so that level of transparency, it almost acts as a gravitational force as well. So I think now, there's so much where from an influence perspective, people are trying to put personas out. And instead, if you're just, it's kind of clear when people are very transparent because it's a little bit, a little bit rougher around the edges sometimes. And that's very authentic to people. Um, and in that case too, I, I also reach out to people where it's like from a hiring perspective, I, if I know somebody I, I want to interview, like I'm going to send them a personal video ahead of time and be like, hey, Richard, this is why I want to talk to you. I look forward to, you know, your interview on Tuesday. Uh, maybe this makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I may have a friend I want to interview, uh, introduce you to, and people will show up. Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, that's a good way to uh, to think about that. Um, I know we we were working on hiring for uh, I'm gonna forget what it's called now. We're like a warehouse manager type position, yeah. and we were just you know it's all like local laborers type force. And we were just having a hard time finding that, and you know maybe we'll have to change some of the way we're approaching getting people in. I'm also really big. If you have anybody on the team as well, though, it's like consistently my best hires have always, whether they're much, uh, they're hourly based, you know, much more um, location-based jobs or knowledge-based work. They almost always come from people I know already and often from my current employees. And so I, I you know, I believe in rewarding people handsomely if, uh, if you recommend somebody. With that said, it, you have to make it really easy for people to actually want to refer you because it's like, People are like, they can love their job, but they'll always, almost always find some excuse to not go post on Facebook that you're hiring a, you know, a warehouse manager. And so like, like it's worth taking the time to write Facebook posts and tweets and, you know, email drafts and give it to people and be like, look, I will give Here's you a thousand dollars if I hire somebody that you recommend. And here's draft wording if you want to use it or not use it. And then like literally every Monday in my team meetings, I tell people, I, I will pay you money to, to if I hire your person. And so we're still hiring for this role. Um, and then by the way, here's new wording again. And um, it just, you have to make it really easy for people because we want to have good people come and work with us. We want to have our friends work with us, but work tasks, home tasks, kid tasks, all of which is like, it's easy, too easy for me to make an excuse why I don't just take 30 seconds and go post on Facebook. Cause like, what am I going to post? Well, if Richard gave me some wording, I'm much more likely to post. And then Richard needs to remind me, I will pay you if I hire your your contact. And they're here for yeah. at least like six months. That's a uh, that's a good call. And you know, stuff that that you know, we've never done anything like that. So that's uh, a. <laughs> but but I mean, I go with that as well. Um, I I don't do this at the current company, but it's like I, there's people I'm sure you've worked with at the four companies you work with now, and you know, in the past where there's people you've worked with that. that you would love to work with them again because they were they were 
you know, high achieving Gosh, performers yeah. and people you're like, I don't want to work with that person again. And so it, it is wor- it's always a great investment for me to pay my employees to take time to cultivate the list of people that they know, whether they're text, email, LinkedIn, and then be like, again, here's the draft messaging. I want you to send this email out to 400 people. I'll even give you the tool to mail merge your list with if you'll send out to 400 people. Um, and then when we hire your person again, I will pay for, I will, I will compensate you for us hiring that person. But you do have to make it, like people want to help. We often just think it's gonna to be too much effort. So just take it out of, you know, as the business owner, you make it easy for them. Yeah, just like take all the effort out. Lendlist is a cheap tool that you could give to anybody on your team that could send out an email to all of their personal contacts that they trust about that job, that office manager role. Yeah, yeah. And you're just, the same thing we do with our, you know, the internal business processes is try to make them as easy as possible yeah, <laughs> um, and repeatable as possible. So it's the same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk then about your common enemy in your business, right? And every every superhero has an arch nemesis, right? It's the thing that they have to fight against in their world, and it takes a lot of forms, a lot of forms in businesses. But I like to put this in the context of the clients that you work with, right? So you help you help companies go through the hyper growth phase, um, and it's a mindset or it's a flaw that those companies come to you with that if you had your magic wand and you could just bop them on the head and not have to deal with that anymore. What is that common enemy that you have to? fight to overcome so you can actually get your clients the results that they come to you for comfort <laughs> what, <laughs> that's, that's a nice simple answer would you care to explain yeah and no uh yeah happy to um i mean and it kind of at all levels but it's like there's been so many times i've coached and mentored people that have seven and eight figure businesses so this is comfortable money it's it's really good money for for, for a lot of people, but you know a, a nine million dollar business when you have expenses and employees, you know may not actually be banking too much money, but it's comfortable money. And mm-hmm. so as a business owner, people are like, yeah, I mean, I might be they might be clearing a half a million, even two million dollars a year. That's comfortable money. When in fact, you know, but they want to grow, but they don't really want to do the work for that nine million dollar business to become a ninety million dollar business. And so because it's comfortable. And so um, the same thing happens with big public companies as well. Hey, you're growing really well. You're growing at 10, 20, 30%, a quarter even. That's comfortable. Well, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to work at a company where we're only like, where we're only growing at 100 or 200% a year. Like I want to grow much more than that. And by all means, let's, let's strive for much more. And then if we fail, well, we've only grown it by like 3X or 5X this year. Well, but that comfort that people have it's really easy to be like, yeah, we don't really need to change things where I'm very much at the belief of like, hey, as best as you can, the current business needs to be put on almost the back burner of the stove. And you need to have part of the business just focused on hyper growth. Things that if it works, if new processes work, if new organic growth uh, means work, that it almost puts the rest of the way you were doing things, your other SOPs, they go out the door tomorrow. And that's, that's not comfortable. It's not comfortable to think about like, hey, I have a $9 million business right now. And like how I'm doing, everything that I'm doing might fundamentally change. Well, yeah, it might, but then you'd have a $90 million business. Or like right now I'm working out and working with a company where, you know, they have hundreds of thousands of uh, monthly visitors to their site. It could easily, easily be tens of millions of monthly visitors. It's not comfortable to do the things that are necessary to grow through there. Um, Cause you have to be really, in some area you have to be both 
happy with what you're putting in an effort today and really unhappy with the results to go, well, I, I, I don't want to sit here, um, you know, from a product perspective. I always hate whatever technology product I'm working on today because in my mind, I know what it's going to look like in 10 years. And so be, nothing I could do in the next 12 months will make me happy because my vision is what the product will look like a dozen years out from now. Yeah, That should be the case for everything in your business. Yeah, it's interesting. And so, so how do you, like I, I, a lot of people build their business for a particular lifestyle goal and then they hit that goal and they just hold their business there. Um, I assume like, like that's, that's sort of like that comfort level. They're like, Hey, I hit, you know, you hit $400,000 a year. You're in the top 1% of income earners in the world. Like you got comfortable money. <laughs> um, and, and so I, that, I assume that that sort of ties into that whole concept of like, if it's not growing, it's dying. There's a lot of that. And, and some of it for me too is, is it, it's easy to find comfort when you don't have a real mission yourself. Like making money, like you'll hit comfort, comfort level pretty quickly for most people. It's the same, you know, you, we see this a lot with software engineers where you kind of hit a number and then like you could triple that number for most people. And it's not fundamentally going to change their happiness in life because software engineer, good software engineers are worth a lot of money already. And so, um, you know, it's the same case for a lot of business owners. I mean, even a lot of investors. And so like for me, like, do I have to work? Not really. I work because I believe it's the best way to grow people and to kind of help society from that. And so like, am I really going to like, I'm, you know, I've tried retiring. It doesn't suit me. Like not only do I get bored, but it, I, I, I just know in my heart that I'm not doing the most of what I can to make the world a better place. And the best way I've always found to mentor people is not just to sit down and talk with somebody for one or two hours a week. It's to, it's to work with them, alongside them. Um, some cases working for them as well, because sometimes I coach, uh, coach upward as well. And so like when you find a business owner and you go, okay, you have comfortable money. Now what? You have young kids. Now what? Now there's part of spending time with your kids, but like I took 19 months on sabbatical that did, I did nothing but spend time with my wife after exiting a company. And I spent a lot of time with really wealthy people, like founders of companies like FedEx Ground or the company that became that. And so I, one thing I asked all these people, it's like, at this point, they have, a lot of them had kids that were, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s. And I'm like, what makes successful kids? Or in some cases, what makes unsuccessful kids? And like, I kind of got this consistent thing that nobody articulated this way, but it was like, there's nothing I can do on this device or my laptop that's not going to feel like I'm playing to my three-year-old or 12-year-old or 14-year-old. I can tell them I'm working. I'm a lawyer. I'm building a company. But this is still going to feel like I'm playing or texting with my friends. And so how do I, how do I help that? I bring them into my business. I do the same thing with people that I work with. And so when you find kind of a core mission like that, there's not a real comfort level that's going to make me okay and be like, I've hit my number, I can go home and go buy a home in South, you know, in Savannah, Georgia, and just like sit by the ocean and be happy because I'm not contributing to society the way that I feel like I'm called to do. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's actually a really good segue into my next question for you, right? So if your common enemy is comfort, that's what you fight against. Your driving force is what you fight for, right? It's the flip side of that coin. Just like Spider-Man fights to save New York or Batman fights to save Gotham or Google fights to index and categorize all the world's information. What is it that you fight for in your business now, your mission? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about people. And so it's also one of the reasons I've been successful in so many different industries, because 
Like, you know, I've been in automotive and cellular and all sorts of other things. And it's like, do I like those things? Yes. I've owned a bunch of brick and mortar companies. I like those things, but I, but what I love is people. And so I want to hear the stories of people that are the foster parents on my team, people that are in elder care, people that we've been able to change their lives. Um, my brother and I, we built up a brick and mortar uh, series of uh, stores, largely um, run by people that were coming out of narcotics, coming through Narcotics Anonymous and transitioning back into much more uh, stable lives. And it's like, like when, when that's your passion and you're fighting for that, you can apply, you can go to any industry and, tap and be uh, good. And even before then, it's like, before I knew what my passion was, like, it was still kind of the same thing, but it's like, I'd have been just as happy helping you with your passion, try to achieve your goals. Cause that would help, that helped me figure out, do I like what Richard cares about or not? Well, that like, okay, that that's a great way. I think for a lot of people to try to figure out like, what should you be fighting for? If you don't know, find out what somebody else is fighting for and go head over tails and helping that. Go fight with them. See if you yeah. like that battle. Yeah. <laughs> see if it's worthwhile that's a that's a good way to think about that um and you know i, I know because it, it changes for everyone right people people are interested in different things yeah. um and really like we're all we're all building our businesses to help support you know support ourselves support our team support you know our customers and whatnot it's all really people right it's you know helping people in one way or another um so you know you have to figure out what what, what makes it important and worthwhile for you yeah, I absolutely. I mean, and you know, I've worked with, I've you know, I've led teams on six continents, um, you know, countless countries, and it's like I, you know, it's it's it it was really rewarding to be able to you know have a meeting with my teams in Singapore and they not know whether or not it was going to be a virtual meeting or I'd walk in the office, but it's like that was great. Um, but I do really like how we've kind of transitioned so much. It sounds like much of your life where you know uh, traveling full time for five years, where it's like. And like I get on the calls with my team now, they don't know whether I'm here or at our property in North Georgia, you know, hours away. And it's like, or am I in Florida or another place? Like, that's great. And be able to kind of have the same thing happen with my teams um, and realize, wow, somebody, you know, on the team, you know, they're, they're visiting their wife in Peru because um, something's going on now. And it's like, cool. Like that's, that's yeah. part of being people first. I, you know, I kind of believe in, you know, mi mission first, people always. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, especially since the pandemic, um, which has only been a couple of years, but like everyone is more comfortable virtual now. And so like, I know, like any of my company meetings that I'm in, they're always like, where are you at today? Because I always yeah. want to know, like, where are you at? Because we travel, which is not a normal thing, but, um, but it's like, it doesn't hinder being able to get work done anymore the way it used to. Yeah. So. You're, you keep talking about traveling full time. It's going to make me want to go buy an earth room. I mean, it's worthwhile. I've, we've been we've been having a good time. Our next our next goal is to buy a sailboat and do port to port around the world. And with the uh, satellite stuff that Elon's putting together, might actually still be able to continue working doing that. Yeah. So, you know, it's just a different world than it has been in the past. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I want to talk um, about some practical stuff. I call this the uh, the hero's tool belt, right? You know, just like every hero has their awesome gadgets like batarangs or web slingers or their magical hammer they can spin around and fly with. I want to talk about the top one to two tools you couldn't live without in your business. Could be anything from your notepad to your calendar to something you use for marketing or something you use for your product delivery. Something you think is essential to getting your job done on a daily basis with the clients you work with. Uh, Trello and physical note cards. So um, my wife and I uh, use Trello, the project management solution. Not only do we do I use it in all, in all the businesses, 
Um, it's it is a requirement if I'm if I'm uh, coming in to, to consult with the company. I, I can adapt to something like an Asana. But my wife and I are so invested. Um, like each of our properties have their own Trello board. We have a different column for errands and buying things because you buy different things at Costco than you do the grocery store than you do at Walmart. And so, hey, I'm at Home Depot. I just pull up the Home Depot Lowe's list and whatever is on there and has been added in the last five seconds, I know to go check off and buy. But I still, I'm a little old fashioned. My, 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 my list ends up coming from note cards. And so um, this is about the, uh, the, the good and the bad of my existence. When it gets too thick, I need, I need to go enter things into uh, the digital source for my teams to pick things up. And, uh, but this lets me stay not distracted. Yeah, that's a, um, I, my, my wife is that way. She, everything goes into a notebook. Yeah. Um, and I'm always like, I, I can't handle that. Cause I'm like a digital first kind of person. So I'm like, it's not actionable if it's in a notebook, I can't do anything with it. Cause one, yeah. I can't find it and I don't know where it is, but, um, like I, we actually, we, I, we had our entire business for the production company built in Trello for a couple of years. And we actually just moved everything off of Trello into, uh, into ClickUp. Okay. Uh, just for, because it allowed us to build the documentation inside of the lists. Yeah. Um, so like the actual tasks, like when you click on them, the actual, the, the documentation shows up right in, in there. So if you click on it, it's like right into it. So same kind of thing. Um, but yeah, like having some sort of project management system has been huge. And then learning how to actually use a project management system so that it no, like the project management system can self-manage, if that makes sense where you don't need to have a project manager to manage your project management system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there are places for project managers. Uh, we, we have one on our team. We, we're probably about to hire another one. But, um, but I, I very much like, it's having the trusted system that it's like, it, it's got to get out of my head because if it doesn't get out of my head, it's, it's not going to be, you know, it, like it's not actionable when it's here. You couldn't possibly pick up, you know, the ball and run with it if the idea is just in my head. And so um, I'm actually, my, my, my index cards on my desk have reached two piles a little bit too high that I need to actually take, you know, about an hour or two and go enter them in Trello so other people on the team can pick it up and, and run with some of those tasks. So just out of curiosity, what do you think are some of your most important processes that you either see missing or that you always go to first when you start working with a company when it comes to hyper growth like what what are the systems that you're like you always either see missing or you see need help when when you get in the two core things for me are having a, a at least a weekly review for for the individual um and or leadership i mean if it if it's a smaller single owned company it, it can be just with that person but it's like but they're also it's like no no like on every sunday or first thing monday morning what happened the previous week and your schedule? Um, what did you get accomplished? What did you not get accomplished that you thought was really important that Monday? And then time blocking your priorities for the week ahead. Those like everything else, like the processes will adapt, but it's like those two things keep you true for, I said this was important and I didn't do it. And so I can adapt and be iterative on everything else. But fundamentally, it comes down to is something, you know, is this is this shortlist important or not? There's a lot of things, you know, that we have to do. We entered it in Trello that um, that is not like they can never have never get done. And the business doesn't actually change. But also, I've looked back at times before and said, wow, like that job description that would have helped me. It's seven weeks later and I haven't written that job description yet. Either I don't need to hire that person or I need to do nothing else until that that person's hired. And so I think that weekly review for myself, but also coaching others and then making sure that they time block going forward, that it's kind of an accountability process 
that corrects everything else in your business. So do you, do you recommend like just teaching people how to do that themselves on a weekly basis or like actually setting company time to like get together either as a pair or a group of people to make that, to do that process? Uh, both. So if it's a company, if, if, if they're, you know, a leadership team, um, I think people should show up to it having done their own, but, um, but it's the process of doing it together. And, and, and giving grace to people as well, where, hey, if you have four or five leaders on a team, we have a, a founding four, a core four on, on, our, uh, on our team. And so, hey, it's highly likely with just everything going on, personal lives and work, at least one of the four of us will not, would not show up to our Thursday meeting for us with fully prepared for it. Well, giving them the grace to show up however they are. And then we'll kind of you know, work through that. Um, but, but that's important to do that together as a team because that's that level of transparency as well. We also use something kind of that does help with it at the end of the week, built in a Slack called GeekBot, where you can just answer like, here's the kind of you know, five questions that everybody needs to answer. And then it posts to a, a public channel. And so it's like, what did you get done? Well, it should be in your GeekBot survey and it's public for everybody. Everybody in the company can go and see kind of what you got done or not got done. And so that's 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 pretty transparent, but also a little bit raw too, where sometimes you go and type things, you know, like either I either I wasn't really effective this week or I just didn't keep track of things. Either way, it changes how you show up the next week. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do something similar with uh, one of my mastermind groups that I'm in. Um, and so it's like leaders of different companies that are doing that, but we have like our you know, essentially like, Hey, here's what we planned to do last week. Here's what we accomplished. And here's what we plan to do next week. Um, and, you know, we sort of popcorn back and forth on help and discussion on those kind of things, but it's, um, we, we do, uh, we do like a minor version of that with my production company where we have like a weekly meeting, um, and we cover essentially like, Hey, here's where the company's goals are. And, you know, here's what we're working on there. And then we go through each of the major departments essentially. And like, Hey, what are you guys up to? And like, what's, what's next kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you have to like, everybody has to get started somewhere, but you know, it's also, I'm also very big on people where like, by all means, you can say that you worked on things, but, but things don't really count until they're done. Like, Hey, yeah. you can have written 90% of an article. It doesn't matter until you actually finish it and publish. Hit publish. Yeah. You, you know, the engineering team, seven people could have worked on an engineering project and they get it to 98% until it's released it's as unfinished as if they had never started to the client. And yeah. so that's a hard thing for people to kind of feel sit with of like, well, you mean I don't get any credit for it? No, it's okay to show work and, and some things take week, you know, multiple weeks and months to work on. But until things are done, they're not done and they don't count. Actually, I had a uh, uh, hired a uh, project management coach that teaches how to build processes in project management yeah. systems and her number one recommendation actually her number two recommendation her number one was to develop your project management system around processes and not around an org chart but her yeah. number two was don't use custom statuses she's like all the project management systems allow you to have all these custom statuses that show you all the stuff for work she's like there's only two it's either to do or it's done there's nothing oh. else yep <laughs> um, she's like because if it's not done like you're, you're, you're faking yourself out into thinking, you know, you're making progress. She's like, you can have stages for stuff, but like for the actual task, it's either to do or done. That's it. And you can break things up. I mean, you know, like I, I work a lot like an enterprise SEO. So large, you know, websites that have millions and millions of pages on there. Hey, you can ask for 
this crazy complicated, you know, page to be built. Well, and that might take, you know, 30 person days of work to be done. Or you can also just have the initial project thing is, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Engineer, can you put words on a page that pulls from this database? 140 characters. You can iterate it on it afterwards, but like that initial tight thing, that might be able to be done in a couple of days. But if you want it yeah. to be, you know, two and a half pages or 1400 characters of custom text, it goes through an AI writer and all, that's complicated. So like chunk it down to your point. So you can say it's either to do or done. And yeah. then just have yeah. a whole bunch of dones as you're moving moving the project forward. To do or done or active or complete. She was like, that's it. That's all you're allowed. She's yep. like, you can stage things, you can break them up. But she's like, for your project management system, if you actually want it to be effective for your team, she's like, it's the one thing we've seen consistently is if you start switching your project management to do done. Yeah. Um, my, my, my wife and I kind of, I, I try. She's much better than me, but I, I have to remind myself, like, I'm either, I'm either with my family or I'm not. I can't be checking my phone, checking Facebook, reading, you know, reading news sources and be with my family. And so it's very kind of similar to that. Like you can only have one status. I'm fully in work. I'm fully in relaxed. I'm with my family. I you can't be doing multiple of those things. Yep. We are, we are at best as human beings, single taskers. Multitasking is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> and now a quick word from our show's sponsor. Hey there, fellow podcaster. Having a weekly audio and video show on all the major online networks that builds your brand, creates fame, and drives sales for your business doesn't have to be hard. I know it feels that way because you've tried managing your show internally and realize how resource intensive it can be. You felt the pain of pouring eight to 10 hours of work into just getting one hour of content published and promoted all over the place. You see the drain on your resources, but you do it anyways because you know how powerful it is. Heck, you've probably even tried some of those automated solutions and ended up with stuff that makes your brand look cheesy and cheap. That's not helping grow your business. Don't give up though. The struggle ends now. Introducing Push Button Podcasts, a done-for-you service that will help you get your show out every single week without you lifting a finger after you've pushed that stop record button. We handle everything else, uploading, editing, transcribing, writing, research, graphics, publication, and promotion, all done by real humans who know, understand, and care about your brand almost as much as you do. Empowered by our own proprietary technology, our team will let you get back to doing what you love while we handle the rest. Check us out at pushbuttonpodcast.com forward slash hero for 10% off the lifetime of your service with us and see the power of having an audio and video podcast growing and driving micro celebrity status and business in your niche without you having to lift more than a finger to push that stop record button. Again, that's pushbuttonpodcast.com forward slash hero. See you there. And now back to the hero show. So essentially every hero has their mentors, right? Just like Frodo had Gandalf, Luke had Obi-Wan, Robert Kiyosaki had his rich dad, or even Spider-Man had his uncle Ben. I wanted to know who, who were some of your heroes? Were they real life mentors, speakers or authors, maybe peers who were a couple of years ahead of you? And how important were they to what you've accomplished so far in your life? Very important uh, and a little kind of different. Um, so it's like, I, you know, I got a work ethic from my mom. Uh, my, my, my dad may have been a knowledge worker and been cranking through things, but my mom was the uh, the mentor that taught me, like, you don't go to sleep when you're tired, you go to sleep when you're done. You know, I remember, you know, uh, you know, helping in the garden and raking leaves and doing, doing things around the house, literally at like, you know, being little at like 1130, one o'clock in the morning, because there was work to be done. And so you didn't, you know, once the project was done, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't finish. Um, and so that instilled a lot of things for me, but um, it really wasn't until like, I was well out of college that um, I had a, my first real mentor named uh, Don, 
and um, Don Wisniewski and like he was just transparent and showed me, you know, opened up and showed me things about work and personal life that I, I didn't even, I didn't know people had relationships like that. Um, but that showed me a different way to kind of lead teams and grow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know it's, it's always been fascinating to me to hear who people um, put up as their heroes, because generally speaking, if you wouldn't ask those people, Hey, did you know that I thought you were here? You were my hero. They would say no, right. They, they wouldn't know that. Oh, yeah. So I always, I always like to think to myself, like, am I acting in the kind of way that's going to be worthy of being someone else's hero? Yeah. Well, and to that point, like many of the people I would look back that were pivotal, pivotal in me reaching where I've been at the time would not have, would, would not have considered themselves that they were a mentor or a coach or like being strongly teaching me things. And you know, I'd say it's probably fairly evenly split between people that like we had formal like mentoring conversations and, you know, that might, that's about four and another four people I'd look back and be like, yeah, they just didn't, they, they didn't realize at the time how important that they were for showing me what it looked like to be a, let's say a, a reasonable, uh, you know, person in society. <laughs> That's a good way to put that. <laughs> a reasonable person in society. So I want to talk then a little bit about your guiding principles, right? One of the things that makes heroes heroic is that they live by a code. For instance, Batman never kills his enemies. He only ever puts them in Arkham Asylum. So as we get to the end of this interview, I want to talk about the top one, maybe two principles that you live your life by. Maybe something you wish you'd known when you first started out on your own hero's journey. Uh, I kind of mentioned an example. It comes from, you know, a lot of military people take this approach, but it's mission first, people always. I was very much early on in my career um, believed, you know, I led by authority and it was like the, the mission was what, what we were trying to do with the company and like, forget people, like if that was collateral damage, it didn't matter. And so that's been very different for the last probably 15 years for me. And so those are really my two guiding principles where, um, you know, I, I'm very, very solid on what mission is. And will not steer, will not separate from that. Both my personal mission and what we're doing in the company. Um, but I also know that, like, we'll ne- It doesn't even matter if we hit the end result if we let people fall by the wayside. So, yeah, absolutely. That's a, uh, that's a, it's a good, a good guiding principle. So, mission first, people always. Yep. <laughs> well, I think that's a great place to wrap our interview. But I do finish every interview with a simple challenge. I call it the Heroes Challenge, and I do this to help get access to stories I may not otherwise find on our own because not everyone else is doing podcast rounds like you and I might be doing. So question is simple. Do you have someone in your life or in your network who you think has a cool entrepreneurial story? Who are they? First names are fine. And why do you think they should come share their story with us here on the Hero Show? First person that comes to mind for you. Um, I do. I mean, that might uh, say my former mentor, Don, would, would, would be one that would come to mind for me. Awesome. And you, we can uh, get together later, maybe do an introduction, see if he'll come up and say the show. Not, not everyone says yes, but when they do, we generally get some cool stories out of those people. Um, <laughs> so in comic books, there's always the crowd of people at the end who are cheering and clapping for the acts of heroism. So as we close, our analogous to that is where can people find you if they want help taking their company through that hyper growth? Where can they light up the bat signal, so to speak, and say, hey, Kurt, I'd like to get your help. And then more importantly than where they can go to do that is who are the right types of people or companies to uh, reach out? Uh, yeah, so the best place to find me is my personal website at kurtwheeler.com. It's going to link to LinkedIn or anything, but um, I do a lot of writing as well. So I'm a big believer in like, hey, there's places where I can step in and help specific companies, but it's like, you know, I, I just put out like 12 to 1300 word or 13,000 words on uh, high achieving servant leadership. And so like, that's good for any, any, any solo entrepreneur that wants to grow, grow a team in a company or anybody that's a public company executive. 
So I've been in both of those roles. And so I actually wrote like those, those two recent articles for kind of an audience for anybody who believes that serving people is the best way to kind of grow a company. And I have a lot of dollar figures and data that shows why that's actually true, so. Yeah, yeah, and those people will be able to find those on KurtEuler.com? They can. Awesome. Um, and for, are you actually actively taking new clients? Not really. Um, I'm, I'm always open to a, to a mentoring or coaching relationship that kind of shows up, but, um, but not any clients. I'm, I'm pretty set with the companies I'm working with right now. Awesome. Well, we do appreciate you coming and sharing your story with us here on The Hero Show. Do you have any uh, final words of wisdom for our audience before hit this uh, stop record button? Um, nothing. Uh, the only thing I would have is if you don't have a mission, help somebody else with theirs until you figure it out. <laughs> That's a great, great thought. Thank you very much, Kurt, for coming on today. Thank you.